for All Songs Considered and WNXP, I'm Julie Height. Bonnie Raitt has been a cultivator of emotional complexity, subtle heat, and supple groove for a good long while. I can barely raise my head off a pillow. Some days I never get out of bed. I start out with the best of intentions and then shuck it instead. Half a century after releasing her self-titled debut, she's back with the first album of her 70s. It's called Just Like That, and it's the work of a career artist whose perspective has only deepened with time and whose drive remains undiminished. Rate is a model of continuity. She's been leading the same core band for decades, presiding over her recording sessions and carefully selecting the songs she wants to interpret. This time, she did a little more writing herself and added a couple of poignant, closely observed story songs to the satisfyingly well-rounded mix. She says that she navigated COVID lockdown and had recording gear brought to a studio in Northern California where she lives to make just like that. The thing about Pro Tools and digital recording now is it's very mobile. You can really record in the middle of anywhere. It frees us up tremendously to be able to record part of the record at home and in different locations, which worked great for COVID because we couldn't be in the same place. We found a window right after everyone got vaccinated. And I said, let's just make the use of the time and get in the studio. So by the time people flew in from my band and my engineer drove up with his Pro Tools kit and we plugged it all into the local recording studio that we rented and we were able to have live music played and make the record in a short period of time. And we even did some overdubs remotely when the band members went back home. So it's made it so much more easy to make records economically and safely, especially with COVID. I know you have done tons of producing over the last three decades, but it's typically been in collaboration with another co-producer or two. Not this time. How would you say that this album reflects the fact that you alone were the one really shaping it in that way as producer? The secret of that for me is the relationship with my band and my engineer, I met Ryan Freeland, who engineered and mixed, recorded and mixed my records, the last three. I met him on the Joe Henry songs that we did in 2010. But I will say that having the same band members for over 30 years, we have a kind of a language together and an ease. There's not a lot of uh, starting from scratch. I love the sound of Ricky Fatar's drum kit. I love the way that Ryan can mic all of our instruments and make us just sound exactly like we do in the room. It's not about making records that are processed. No fault of, of those kind of records. It's just not where I'm coming from. I'm coming from much more of a live, get the sound that you want out of your amp and the keyboards and just document it onto the tape and then mix it the way it sounds. So we were doing overdubs and arranging and planning the mixes from Chicago to Northern California in real time with this program called Audio Movers that allowed us to be right in real time with his computer. I could give him feedback on what, you know, turn the piano down in the third bridge. For a solo artist, you've had a striking amount of continuity in that band. I mean, for decades with mostly the same players. But what do you look for and value in the musicians that you want alongside you in all of those settings? They have to have a sound and a range of taste 
that matches my own, which is a pretty wide berth. You know, I love reggae. I love African music. I love Celtic music. I love singer songwriter. I love ballads like I Can't Make You Love Me. And and then the probably the real telling for me is funk and rock and roll. Like if they can play that fabulous Thunderbird song with authenticity and if they love love letter and the funkiness of some of the other uptown, like love sneaking up on you or burning down the house. If they sound like they love it as much as I do. And we have a conversation about what music we share together. And, but it's mostly the proof is in their playing. There's something about their playing and their tone that I think is going to blend with the, with my guitar tone and my sensibilities. But then uh, aside from their musical capabilities, they have to be great people, you know, really good hang, to be good to their families, kind, considerate, funny, smart. Otherwise, the other hours that you're not on stage are going to be a drag. No doubt. <laughs> I feel like there are certain features of your music that immediately announce themselves as Bonnie Raitt signatures. And I'm talking about your slide guitar tone, even the unhurried way that you might sink into a note, the kinds of grooves that you favor with that band. And I wonder how did you flesh out a template that you can apply to albums that also gives you room and isn't constricting? Well, I don't think about staying in a certain lane. The song really tells you what it wants, in my opinion. And, and for example, our, our first single off this new record, Made Up Mine, I think it's just a natural way that I pick the songs that just feel right for me. The quiet I just get the guys in the room and I already in my mind have an idea of how I want to rearrange a Jerry Rafferty song right down the line as a reggae song, or I want to rearrange Need You Tonight a little slower and I know which part, you know, I just, the guys know me and I know them and I, I come to them with a new batch of songs and sort of talk out what I feel is going to be the best direction for the songs. And it just seems pretty organic and seamless at this point and really fun. Since you brought up Made Up Mine, the first line of that song, It Starts Out Slow, was one that stuck with me over time. And another line that stuck with me was, I don't feel like a fool, but I feel intoxicated from the song, Something's Got a Hold of My Heart. Feels good when you're going insane. And I don't feel like a fool, but I feel intoxicated. are songs that show the power of getting swept up in feeling or desire, but also how easily those attachments can fade or disintegrate, you know, what the stakes are. You know, I've covered a lot of topics about the falling in love and the ways that it falls apart. And that's the fascinating side to me, like a prism, just turning it in the light. And to me, some of the richest songs that I've heard in my life are those heartbreak torch ballads that Frank Sinatra and 
Dinah Washington and Ray Charles, the great heartbreak songs when it's not working out. But the ways that love doesn't work out to me are in the, in the beginning, like it, you know, the made up mind about, you know, the argument and the deterioration starts out slow. You know, it's just really important to be able to express that for myself and for the people in the audience. And of course, the, the ultimate one is I can't make you love me. I mean, I've been on both sides of that. And I just every night when I sing it, it calls back the pain of both. And um, the, what made me want to sing songs are the songs that break my heart. I thought it was really interesting that in some of the songwriting you did for this album, you took more of an observational, character-driven approach, zeroing in on really specific and very human experiences, like losing a child on the title cut, just like that. Sat down and took a deeper breath and looked right in my face. I heard about the son you lost, how you left without a trace. I spent years just trying to find you so I could finally let you know. It was your son's heart that saved me and a life you gave us both. On this record, because I had really mined my personal life so much across the previous couple of decades, at least, I really covered almost everything I wanted to about my family and my regrets and my memories and messages that I wanted to send myself, as well as wherever my family members are at the moment. I wanted to take a shift and go into a third person in a style of that moved me so much when Donald and Lydia and Angel from Montgomery first showed up when I first met John Prine and fell in love with those songs. But the story songs of Bob Dylan early on in my mid-teens, you know, they really have impacted me as well. But I, I love a good short story and I love stories, songs in the tradition of the folk tradition of writing in third person. And um, I knew that was going to be different for me. And I also wanted to go away from the piano where I usually write those ballads and play on acoustic guitar. Like I started out playing folk guitar when I was nine or 10 and just sat for hours and always played my heart out in my room. And then those early albums of Jackson Brown and John Prine and my Irish friend, Paul Brady, continued to resonate with me as one of the greatest eras of my musical growth and emotional references for me. Just the simple power of finger picking and singing over the, that droning sound and that's what I was aiming for with these songs. Yeah, it didn't it didn't only make me think of John Prine's recordings. It took me back to your early recordings as well and those kind of acoustic leaning arrangements and that guitar approach. It made it fresh for me and and you know again I just I was going to running out of things to say about my own love life and my own personal life and I just said, you know, this is I love stories about other people and it opens up a whole window for me in the future of being able to write from a point of view of the, the short stories that I love, you know, inhabiting those people and finding my own personal truth and connection with them as I did with the two people I wrote about on down the hall and just like that. I, I don't have to go through you know, having lost my son and donating a heart to uh, 
or or being in prison serving on a, you know volunteering on a hospice ward but those stories when they appeared to me in my life were so moving that it was immediate that I was going to write a song about it I had the flu in the prison infirmary my last day I looked up and saw a man wheeled around the corner down to skin and bones that's all I asked the nurse where he was going She said, hospice down the hall He probably won't be in there long Any day we'll get the I was so moved by this New York Times Magazine article in 2018 about a prison hospice program. And the photo essay that accompanied it was just, I, I have not been as moved by an article in, in many years. And I just, it stayed with me and I wept at the time. And and for the next few weeks, it just really stayed with me. And I realized, I, I was wondering, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't planning to get in the studio and I didn't even have a, any ideas for songs for the next record. And, and suddenly that, it dawned on me that that was the song right there. And our conversation with Bonnie Raitt will continue right after this short break. You mentioned earlier your admiration for the richness in tone that all of these other voices around you were sort of gaining and gathering over time. And I know in your early 20s, there were things that you did. You were in a little bit of a hurry to sort of make your own voice sound more weathered and lived in than it did at the age of 21, 22, 23. And I wonder, what is your relationship with your voice at this point in your performing life? What a great question. You're right in saying that I was frustrated with the way that I sounded early on. I never expected to be singing professionally. I just did it as a hobby and and I always wanted to sound like the most seasoned blues woman that I'd ever heard and like my idols that I that had lived a long and hard life and a lot of the blues men who really just sounded as worn as they were. And I drank and smoked and hung out and did everything I could to try to beat my voice into submission in my 20s until about <laughs> 27. I would like I was on the road maybe 10 months of the year and, and I think I made six albums and seven years, I can't even imagine the pace that I was going at. And yet, finally, by the time I was 29 or 30, I could actually thought I could sound almost like what I wanted to when I was singing. And by the time I was 40, it was really an instrument that I could feel comfortable was really reflecting the age that I was at and the experience that I'd had and the soul that I wanted to convey. And I think getting older in these last decades has been um, interesting to gain notes on the bottom of my range. I mean, I used to have to sing Dimming of the Day in a certain key that would make certain notes too high for me, but then I'd in order to be able to get that low note. And now I can, I can really nail the bottom and some of the higher notes are harder to hit. But I yeah. think I've got more colors to play with when I'm singing are there performances on this new album that you can point to that you feel like 
reflect that deepening in your voice and thing textures that are there. Yeah. There's a torch song on there called Blame It On Me. And mm-hmm. I'm really happy with mm-hmm. I'm really happy with that vocal. Blame it on me. Hold up my falls all to see. Truth is love's first casualty. Blame it on me. Blame it on me. You know, I'm, I want to make sure that everyone grows older with me and appreciates the different colors that come into your voice. And I think the fans do. Yeah. And I wondered, I mean, as you reemerge and resume this whole process of releasing new music, promoting it, gearing up for tour after that extended pause, are there aspects of it that you are finding you have heightened awareness of or new appreciation for? Well, the first warm-up shows we did a couple of weeks ago was the first audience I heard clapping back. And it was just astonishing how much the joy that was in that room between us on stage and our crew. And it was all I could do not to break down into tears. But the fans being able to be in the room with us when we play and the connection with my band, it was just, it was hard to just keep a big grin off our faces the whole set. You recently received the Icon Award from Billboard. They reeled off numerous accomplishments, numerous career accomplishments. But I was so glad to hear that one thing that they included was your longtime band leading. Because to see and hear you moving with such comfortable authority through these supposedly masculine domains was huge. What did it take and what kind of satisfaction has it offered you to work your way to owning those spaces and those roles and making them your own? Well, sometimes being the youngest or the only female in the room telling other experienced players who've been in bands for years when they they don't quite know what you're talking about if you're not a school musician and you can't just reel off the chords and the time signatures, you just have to sing it live for them or say, can you move the register? So the fact that I'm not a trained musician traditionally gives held me back a little bit in, in my ability to communicate what I want, including with my longtime band. So a lot of times I'll have to play something on someone else's record or show them physically what I'm talking about because, it, it, you know, there's an art to carving out a sound that you want to have you have to give people the leeway and the respect to play the way they they feel it and then you just have to use a great deal of diplomacy and sensitivity so that you're not pushing the mom button of ordering people around when you're not the best musician in the room so i don't want to ever be in that position that said i have a musical idea and i have a compass that i'm trying to get to this place and i have to just surround myself with musicians that are willing to be flexible and understand that I come with that set of skills where I eventually am going to end up with something that's really original and new. But to get there, sometimes this is a circuitous route. And uh, it's not always successful. Sometimes people resent being told what to play or to switch instruments or switching approaches. So it's a lot of risk at not being liked if to be a musical director. 
but it makes an added layer of complication when you're a female as well. Well, I appreciate that work that you have done all of these years, you know, to have that be another consistent component of your career. I had to earn their respect. And I think they ultimately know that the proof is in the pudding. When you look back at the work that the music that I've done, those arrangements and picking the songs has really been me all along. But then it's a question of getting the right people in the room that will play well together with each other for each song. And that's why I've been so lucky to have a band that could basically play anything I throw at them. And on this other, this last record, Waiting for You to Blow is a complete arrangement I had in my head of a very unusual mix of kind of jazzy tones and chords with a funk bass. And Mm -hmm. there was all kinds of unusual stops and starts and little horn licks that I wrote for the organ to play. And, uh, you know, they weren't quite sure it was going to be successful. But when we at the end of the day, it was worth the effort. So, you know, it's tricky to arrange stuff and and work well with others. But the, the payoff when everybody mutually respects each other and is willing to give everyone a little bit of rope to do what they need to do and not be didactic and boss people around, you end up with a great collaboration. And that's what I'm really proud of the most. All that mess and check. Covering the fickle beast. You better stick to what you know. And I'm always riding shotgun, baby. Just waiting for you to blow. Bonnie Raitt talking with us about her new album, Just Like That, out now on Red Wing Records. And for NPR Music and WNXP, I'm Julie Height. 